Hi, I'm John Goddard. Uh, I'm the chief editor of the BJAIR, and I'd like to welcome you all to our annual lecture. Uh, the speaker this year is uh, Charles Heckscher. Uh, he's professor at Rutgers University uh, and director of the Center for the Study of Collaboration and Work in Society. His research is focused on organization change and the changing nature of employee representation. Uh, he's currently working on a book on the transformation of societal community. Uh, he's also worked as a practitioner and consultant on, pro on processes uh, of organizational development, uh, primarily in the telecommunications industry. Uh, before coming to Rutgers, he worked for the Communication Workers Union in the U.S. and, and taught human resource management at the Harvard Business School. Um, I also believe, although he left this out of the blurb, he gave me, he actually studied at Harvard, and actually, this may be a hidden secret, uh, took at least courses from Talcott Parsons. So there's a hidden Parsonian in him, for those of you who go back in social theory. Um, his books include uh, The New Unionism, White Collar Blues, Agents of Change, and The Collaborative Enterprise. And the topic uh, tonight is Transient Solidarities, Commitment and Collective Action in Post-Industrial Societies. Um, we're hoping that he'll keep his talk down to about 30 or 40 minutes uh, and allow perhaps half an hour for questions afterwards. Um, if you notice after 30 minutes, he's only about halfway through, start shuffling papers or something. This is the kind of signal that usually works when, whenever I'm teaching. Um, so you can try it on Charles. But anyway, I welcome Charles. Uh, uh, I think uh, you'll find this an extremely, I, I, when I first came across it, unorthodox and hopefully provocative and most of all intellectually stimulating uh, uh, lecture. Oh, so. Now I've got to figure out how to get from here. Oh, there it is. Good. Good. That's it. <laughs> All right. I will do my best. I was thinking a little longer than 30 minutes. There's a lot to pack in, but I will do my best to keep it short. And so if it's too fast, let me know that too. Uh, my topic uh, today of solidarity is one of those concepts that uh, people talk about a lot, use a lot, but there's not a lot of analytic tools to grasp hold of it, particularly in a period of rapid social change when the very foundations of social relations in many areas are in question. Uh, so I am today going to take a, a run at it uh, by going through theory and history a little bit, try to keep that short, but to uh, give enough perspective to ask the question, are there new forms of solidarity emerging now? And uh, how would one go about mobilizing them? So uh, first, a picture. That's uh, what we usually think of as solidarity. Uh, and really, the thrust of my remarks in a, a lot today are going to be putting that picture into question, saying, you know, this is one of several forms of solidarity. Uh, so let me start with the definition. Uh, I'm talking about by solidarity. I don't really mean what Durkheim meant by it, of general community. I mean something oriented to collective action for social change and the sense of shared obligation and commitment uh, for, to engage in such action and what are the conditions for that to emerge uh, and how, how can it be mobilized. Uh, I'm motivated to engage in this inquiry by the general sense that solidarity is declining over the last 
few decades. So this is a diagram in the labor field. Uh, I'm going to sort of base myself in the labor field, though I think a lot of my remarks have a wider uh, application as well. Uh, in the labor field, we um, uh, this is a chart from our host, John Goddard's recent article on the strikes across a number of Western advanced industrial countries, which shows uh, the problem. And it's a wide problem, and it's a long-running problem. Uh, this has been going on for a long, well, to call it a problem. It's a wide phenomenon and a long-running phenomenon. It's not something that shall, in the U.S., the U.S. data that I, chart that I found bears a disturbing resemblance to uh, the heartbeat of a dying person, I would say. Um, so what do we make of this is the question, is the starting question. What do we make of the fact that it, apparently solidarity, when you talk to labor leaders and leaders of many kinds of action groups, they say uh, you know, that they can't count on the solidarity that they used to be able to count on from their members. Um, so for a lot of people, you know, the answer is, well, people are just disconnected now. People are just, you know, have withdrawn from society. They're passive. They're not, you know, very, they're not engaged and so on. They're sitting around watching their TVs, et cetera. Um, but, you know, uh, I don't think that's true of most of the people in this room. It's not true of most of the people I know. It's not really true of society in general that people are looking like this in their lives. If you're looking just at a single phenomenon like the strike rate, you might conclude this, but the question is, what are people doing? And what is the kind of solidarity now that, that might emerge from it? So in order to get at that, I'm going to have to do a little theory. In other words, I have to pose the question in a general enough way and have some concepts that are general enough to explain some of the forms of solidarity that have existed in the past. In the labor field, we have you know, two that are pretty clear, craft and industrial solidarity. So we have two quite different types in the past. Uh, we have to be able to explain both of those and in a way that's general enough to leave room for the possibility of another. And that's the... Um, uh, so that's where I actually do draw on my, heaven help me, Parsonian background and, and, and Durkheim to try to develop some, some basic concepts. And this is the essential theory that I'm going to work on, which is that solidarity is a sum of two things. First, the first term is relations. So solidarity emerges from relations in the Durkheimian sense, that is, interconnections among people, daily, daily life relations which create mutual obligations, reciprocal obligations, norms, and roles that people are, you know, sort of ongoing, in an ongoing way, expect from each other. So those relational bases are the core of any kind of solidarity, but by itself that doesn't lead to collective action, which is what I'm looking at. So you have to add a term. So the other one is ideology, a moral appeal. So when you add ideology to relations, you get something that I would call solidarity in the sense I've defined. And I, but, you know, let's say a little more than that because ideologies are cheap. There are a lot of them around. I want to say something about what makes a good ideology, and I think, and I'll illustrate this a little more later, but that uh, ideology is an abstraction from, a universalization of the characteristics of the relationships, uh, the relational base of the solidarity. So it's the claim that the way, you know, the general core characteristics of our relationship should be, of our relationship are good uh, and should be a model for society. So those are the ideologies that appeal to people and generate motivations for solidarity. So I'll illustrate that a bit. So, but first, you know, so what I'm trying to do here today, I'm going to describe quite quickly 
just as a kind of illustrative way, craft and industrial solidarity in these terms, the relational base, the ideology, and the kinds of organization and collective action that come from it. And then, um, then pose, and this is, should be the, you know, this is the part I want, I hope, I hope to spend more time on, what is there a new form emerging? Craft and solidarity, right? This goes back, you know, was at its height in the 19th century, really, based, and goes way back into the Middle Ages, the guilds, but it's based on the relational base as occupational communities, which are strong, self-governing, independent, pretty much self-complete, and in the strongest cases, really have institutions that cover birth to death. The importance is, uh, uh, important thing is that they are, um, um, is that they're self-governing and, and independent, uh, and their ideology that emerged from these at times of social movements where universalizations of those characteristics have been, that they're looking for to create a societies in which the way of life is one of independent, artisanal, communal, local Gemeinschaft self-governance. Uh, and the movements, the collective actions, the organizations that uh, emerge from those or that, that organize these actions are generally local and, and they're participative and continuous. They're not necessarily democratic. In fact, usually not democratic in anything like the voting sense, but they are participative because everybody's got a role in the community in an ongoing way. They know where they fit. They all you know, have, a, have an ongoing uh, strong connection. Uh, the scale tends to be small. They are able to sustain long actions with very flexible tactics because the whole idea of the ideology is embedded in their deep way of life in an ongoing way. Uh, it, they're not, these movements, these, this solidarity, and this is an important point, is not necessarily conflictual. Right? The solidarity of craft organization is often directed towards building apprenticeship systems, controlling labor markets, uh, building the sort of structures that enable them to maintain their way of life. And only occasionally do they come in conflict with those who threaten them. And at that point, they, you know, they, they, they still tend to take these sort of small-scale actions, um, it gets complicated from that point. But the essential solidarity is not one of conflict. That kind of, this is, by the way, I was looking for a picture of Samuel Gompers and his cigar uh, colleagues uh, talking about uh, uh, socialism uh, at work, but instead I found a guild of lace makers. But it gives a little bit of a sense of the, um, the prideful, self-governing quality of a lot of these craft communities. This has been declining for well over a century. Has the relational basis declined? As craft communities, occupational communities, have been one after another wiped out by, by industrialization and automation and other forces. Okay, so as those relations decline, the ideology also becomes significantly less credible. The idea of a society of small artisanal groupings and so on becomes less credible, and the movements lose energy. As craft solidarity declined, however, um, another form of solidarity replaced it. And this is kind of, this replacement image is one that is important to me going forward. Industrial solidarity. This is actually a recent picture of industrial solidarity. So I didn't, you know, all the, all the other ones were in black and white. I thought I'd get one in color. Uh, but um, very different kind of picture. Uh, industrial solidarity, the relations, can oversimplify a little bit, but not too much, are based on the factory. Large factory floors developed, expanded rapidly in the early part of the 20th century. 
and what a factory floor is, is a lot of undifferentiated workers who are not self-governing at all. In fact, all the conditions of the community are set by management, by, by another group. Management hires, management fires, management tells people what to do, management places people, management determines the relations. So this is a kind of grouping that is not self-governing in anything like the way a craft one is. It's an undifferentiated mass, but the daily relations, every day on the, cra- on the shop floor, you're sitting there, you're talking to people who are sort of like you because there's a manager coming down the way and you're saying, uh-oh, here comes the manager. There's a constant, uh, did, you, did you see what they did to Joe the other day? What are they going to do next? There's a constant daily experience of this split between the workers and the managers. And that constant daily experience is what determines the solidarity, is, is what lays the basis for solidarity. Um, which, and the ideology that emerges from that is a universalization of that experience, which is an attempt to defend and expand uh, universal rights against you know, a system that's defined by others. Um, it also turns into an ideology of a balance of power in most of the West. In some forms, it became we should replace them, but in, in most of the advanced industrial countries, it became an ideology of uh, we must want to expand, protect the rights of this group. Management can do management stuff. We can do our stuff, and it's really about protecting the rights. So this ideology that reflects, again, this daily relationship on the shop floor, a kind of dualism fighting ideology which is quite different from the craft one. The collective action, then, is much more centralized than uh, and much more emphasized than craft action um, focus, with focused demands and, and a mass and mass action. All right. Just to sketch there these two kinds of, the kinds of solidarity. Oh, another point, however. Another picture of industrial solidarity, union meeting, because what's relevant here is that the organization in industrial solidarity is more separate from the community than it was in craft solidarity. The organization in craft is very tightly embedded in the community. The, uh, in, in an industrial, it's a larger scale. It becomes a more centralized organization, more bureaucratic. So you have people getting together, taking votes on what we're all going to do, representing others. Right? So it's, a, it's, a, it's a quite a different uh, type of, of connection. That, too, is declining. And that's declined, again, as the relational base has faded the last 30, 40 years, uh, particularly, the relational base of the factory has been constantly uh, frittered away by uh, work uh, reduced by globalization, by automation, by uh, the rise of teamwork, by knowledge work, and so on. A whole set of factors one can point to, but that have reduced the, the factory floor is no longer the image of good management in, a, in a, an increasing number of industries and settings. And so uh, you don't have that constant daily relation of the, of the connection to management. So what I've done just really quickly here is to sketch in terms of relations, ideology, and collective action to the two different kinds of solidarity with which we're familiar. I want to do that as a pref- prelude, preface to saying, is there something happening now as we have the decline of industrial is there something now uh, that we can, you know, look to? And if that's uh, and following the analysis that I have been suggesting, you'd start with the relations. Start with the uh, start. Start with the relational base. See what's going on there, and see whether any what kind of solidarity might emerge from it. So, what's the, what's happening in relations? Well, again, 
Um, for the communitarians, this is Robert Hoffman's communitarians' relationships are essentially dispersing, weakening, weakening, I think would be the term, right? That their people are just all fragmented and to individualist. Um, and one can certainly see the rise of these kinds of transient relations throughout the society, both at work, which has become more decentralized, more fluid, more unstable for many, many, for the majority of the workforce. Uh, and uh, all in society more widely, where loyalties to institutions in many arenas uh, can be <laughs> documented as, as having, uh, ha- having declined. That is, let's take the family. The loyalty to the family as an institution was one time you know, determined by God and absolute and unquestionable. Now it has become much more of a conditional question. Um, divorce rates have gone up and so on and so forth. So loyalties to, to firms, to political parties, to institutions of that sort have declined uh, throughout the society. Meanwhile, you have the rise of a lot of individualized things. Instead of going to the theater with a lot of people, you stay home and can control it all in personal entertainment and so on. So that's the kind of thing that Putnam and others are talking to. Putnam's image is, of course, people used to bowl in leagues. Now they go off and they bowl on their own. But... Oh, well, let me, uh, let, me, let me put this in theoretical terms for a moment. In, the, uh, in using network theory, which is the sociologist's way of, of drawing the kinds of relational bases that I describe, right? So the relational base of industrial solidarity and craft solidarity, and somewhat, I have to draw them a little differently, but they both fall into the notion of a small world, which is, according to network theorists, the core of the way relations have gone in society for quite a long time. A small world is that most people relate within relatively small, stable groups. Right? Most people are, are, uh, are locals. They, uh, they are, they're in intense, stable, uh, committed groups. That's, who, that's where they build their identities. That's where they build their sense of the world. A few people link them. Right? A few people bridge. Those are cosmopolitans, locals and cosmopolitans. You know that terminology. Um, and so uh, that means that the whole kind of has a, a, a scale. Right? It's not just scattered small groups, but it's only a few people who are able to make that kind of bridging things. Most people don't have that, that relation. That's the core of the notion of a small world. And what Putnam and others are in effect arguing is that the small worlds have fragmented. People are no longer sort of living within their small groups, but they're off on their own as individuals and that they're just weakened relations. But, however, that's not really what's going on, is it? I mean, we're living in the middle of the greatest communications and interaction revolution since the printing press, which is growth of the Internet, a whole host of, actually, communications technologies. People are communicating with each other and relating to each other more, not less, the question is, what are they relating about? And what is the nature of that relation? And, and Putnam and others really miss that point almost entirely and don't ask that question. Uh, and the scale of it is really startling. I mean, let me just remind you that um, Facebook, to take as a rep, and I don't, don't want to emphasize, I'm not talking about Facebook as the phenomenon, but as an example or something that actually helps catalyze the phenomenon of the changing relations that I'm talking about. But, uh, you know, ten years ago, it started. Eight years ago, nobody had heard of this. Eight years ago. And it now has 1.3 billion members. 
three quarters of whom get online with it on any given day. So that uh, in the US, a third of the US population, I think the same is true in England, are on a sign on to Facebook in any day. That's an incredible shift in something. And to think through what the something is, is is really my problem. That's a relational shift, I think, quite profoundly. What is the nature of that shift? Uh, it's also quite global, by the way. It's concentrated in urban uh, and, or, or advanced industrial kind of areas, to be sure, uh, U.S. and Europe, but uh, also the more developed parts of South America. Anyway, it's an extraordinarily expansive global kind of network of connections. So what is the nature of these connections? What is going on? Putnam would say, and others would say, they're fake. They're kind of, you know, air sats connections. They're replacement for the real thing. And unless you get them, this is what Putnam says quite explicitly, unless you get the real kind of relations, nothing happens. So let me um, uh, tell an anecdote. This is... uh, 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 that, that, that helped me think through what the nature of these relations are. A couple of Christmases ago, I um, was sitting at, uh, at, on Christmas Eve, just come back from church with my family, my wife, my three kids, and several of their friends. So we had nine or ten people sitting around. The living room, Christmas tree was lit, the kind of presents were out, were all and everybody pulled out their phones, you know, their tablets, and started tapping away. So I... Did too, actually. I pulled out my phone, since everybody else was. But then after a bit, uh, being a sort of senior curmudgeon and, and having read Putnam and so on, I looked up and said, isn't this interesting? You know, here we are, Christmas Eve, all sitting here together, and nobody's talking to anybody. And my uh, daughter said, no, no, Raj and I are having a great conversation. Raj was on the other side of the room. Right? <laughs> so this could be a story of you know, the weakening of relations, the fragmenting of relations, the uh, loss of community, but it's not. Because what happened then was that we, we had a great conversation. We, 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 all, we got to get talking about what I just said, and then we talked about, you know, the meaning of Christmas, and we talked about society, and, we had a, and then we sort of fragmented out again. But when we realized, and I realized, we talked about this, that well, we had this conversation in the room, but there were dozens of other conversations going on out of that world. There were conversations with people in China, people in Africa, people in Europe, France, England, Italy, uh, going on out of that room. And we're going out, we're going in. In other words, the experience of Christmas, com- communality, had not been diminished. In fact, in some ways enriched. It was certainly complexified. It was much more complex. A lot more was going on in that room than would ever have been before. Um, and in many ways, it was much livelier. You know, we weren't all just staring at each other and wondering how to avoid the traps that we had fallen into every Christmas for the last, you know, X years, which is the usual way Christmas used to go. This experience made me think about the kind of relation which I'm calling, just using the Facebook term and to be a little provocative, friending. It's what you do in Facebook, right? You friend people. What's that relationship about? Um, the first point I want to make is that this is not created by Facebook. Facebook has emerged so rapidly on Facebook and other social media because it allows people to express something which has been developing, I think, since at least the 1960s, as some of the evidence that I look at. Uh, but it has these characteristics. 
The relations in friending are very deliberate, and conditional. Uh, I mentioned that about marriage, right? Marriage, and it is still intense, but it's much more conditional than in the past. Therefore, divorce rates have gone up. So if you don't, you know, if, if it isn't working for the parties, you can go somewhere else, right? Still intense, still high commitment, still high obligation, but conditional. Um, the second thing is that they're complex, right? So people, so people are, uh, are relating not just to one major group and sticking within that and understanding that group. They're relating to many groups. Everybody's relating to many groups. So many groups are in the room, wherever you are, right? So instead of identities and norms being set just by people who are dealing with each other, identities and norms are being set by people who are dealing with each other and with people who the other people aren't dealing with. It's a really transformative thing in human relations, historically. I don't think we've ever had anything like this. Um, They are deliberately diverse. Uh, You can see on Facebook and on Reddit and in the other sites that I look at a deliberate attempt for people to reach out, uh, both for resources, you know, to find people who have knowledge or or networks or something that they can use, for for information, for relations, different kinds of relations. People keep up old relationships much more than they used to, right? Uh, and, um, and they deliberately try to find people who disagree with them on things or things that they're not familiar with and try to you know, find out more. Wide in scope, many levels of intensity. And the last point that I want to make about this type of relation, friending relation, is that it seeks, under, it's a, it seeks understanding. That is, the model of relations in the modern world was everybody's a morally autonomous agent. You know, you and I may agree ought to do something, but it's because, you know, you know, we each have, share an interest. A lot of the conversation that goes on in the family world is about actually trying to understand other people and what makes them tick, which means that the boundary between public and private is being eroded. The public-private boundary in the modern world protected the notion of... Um, of moral autonomy of the individual, moral individualism. Now people are trying to both build their characters and understand others through really understanding rather private, personal, uh, intimate things about each other. Well, that's a quite a different kind of relation. And what I, the way I want to put it in, in network terms uh, is that we're moving not to a dispersed world like this, uh, but to what a, another, another network friend of mine called a cohesive small, small world. People still have their reference groups, and if you look at, a, at the studies of, of Facebook, people have inner circles of friends that they communicate with a lot in their outer circles. People have, a lot of, have, their, have their inner circles and their intense relations, but the, everybody in those relations has other ones. Right? Instead of just cosmopolitans who are linking, just a few cosmopolitans who are making the links. And that transforms the nature of social relations. Uh, let me just say a word or two about, you know, who are these people? Is it, uh, is it just a few marginal geeks? And I've been trying to get hold of that a little bit. I've been doing a survey myself as well as reading the other literature. And I think it's, uh, you know, using a kind of strong measure of diversity, of embracing diversity, of seeking out diversity, as a proxy, I would say it's somewhere between a third to a half of the U.S. population, depending on the measure, are embrace this kind of ethic that I'm talking about and these kinds of activities. And as far as I can tell, I mean, there's a very clear factor that emerges in factor analysis from the survey, uh, which has all these things that I'm talking about in it, uh, both diversity and, and, and a lot of social action, incidentally. Uh, they're not particularly young and educated. There's some 
correlation with youth and education, but it's a weak one. It's 0 0.1, 0 0.15 kind of relation. Right? There are a lot of people who are not... It's true that it drops off very sharply at the very bottom level. People who don't have a high school education are not in this. But as soon as you get to level two, as it were, high school and above, pretty, pretty well mixed. Okay. Um, and it's, interestingly enough, it's not, you know, uh, slackers. <laughs> it's not people who, uh, you know, just are marginal to say. They, they embrace, for the most part, there's a lot of overlap with embracing the classic Protestant ethic virtues of hard work and, uh, and personal responsibility. Um, they tend to be, this is from well, my research and others, uh, at least as engaged in the real world community as non social media users. This is looking just at social media users. Um, and, um, and to maintain you know, the real world friendships and to be poli pretty politically active. Right. So now my question is how do we, how, what, what is this relate? So that's the relational base that I think is developing. What does that mean for solidarity? Well, first of all, you need an ideology. And I think the ideology, the vision of the future that's coming out of the groups here, that actually is the basis for certain kinds of collective action, which I'm going to describe in a moment, is um, one of which, which universalizes the characteristics of those relations, of the friending relationships. Openness, diversity, um, sharing. It's got a strong li libertarian flavor to it, by the way. Um, you know, you look at sites like Reddit or others, there's a, there's a, the, the ideology that emerges from these kinds of communities is fairly libertarian, but mutualist. Right? People helping each other, people sharing with each other, um, and making a contribution to the whole. Okay, so I'm going to give an example, just to give you some picture of what I'm talking about. Um, and the example is Mozilla. I don't know whether you're aware. Mozilla is, of course, the foundation. They, they produce the Firefox browser, right? But they're not a company. Uh, they're a foundation initially, and they're a bunch of... The, the browser is produced through open source sharing, a very interesting process of you know, open source sharing. But more than that, they have a social mission. They have, with a you know, very ambitious social mission. They want to create a society that isn't, is based on an open internet. Um, an act of human collaboration across an open platform is essential, this is at the end here, essential to individual growth and our collective future. We want to, they want to help people to be active in relation to the internet, not passive consumers. They want to give people those tools. Uh, they want to make sure, they want to act politically to make sure the internet stays open rather than being closed down by companies and by governments and so on. Right, so they have political and personal agendas. It's a social movement of, of, uh, of, of great ambition. What does it look like? It doesn't look like any of these things, right, when they're getting together and acting or anything like that. What it looks like is um, this. But what is this? This is a conference in London last fall, Mozfest, Mozilla Festival. And people are getting together, um, you know, to, to sort of pursue this mission but the way they do it is they all form different projects, right? So everybody's, these people are working on developing programs that kids can use to become more active, engaged in the Internet rather than just passive consumers of the Internet. That's really their goal. So they have a workshop, you know, and people are programming there, and the kids are involved and so on. That's collective action, aimed towards a mission, aimed towards a, not the kind of collective action that I started with, right? Um, the... Um, thing that um, 
the organizers tell me they feel that they've learned over the four or five years that they've been doing it. How many years they've been doing is, uh, is this phrase. Uh, to have a successful, to be successful in generating energy, generating effort, more hack, less uh, yak, more hammer, less yammer. In other words, the hack meaning do something. Get out there and work on programming something, on putting together a campaign, everybody, right? To get that, provide a venue in which that happens. Not get everybody together to vote, right? When they started doing that, they lost energy. When they started doing this, they gained energy and power. And, whoop, wrong direction. Um, this is going on all over the world. These MozFests are happening, uh, you know, like London, Malaysia, Holland, Philippines, but there are a lot of others. And they're linked in this kind of loose way by the, by the foundation that helps sponsor them, that helps, you know, helps people find them. So all around the world, you've got these movements going on to try to, around this mission, building, maintaining the open internet, building people's capabilities for using it, uh, building a society of open uh, interaction, a friending society. Okay, next step, I just want to take you on a couple more steps very quickly. Um, Mozilla, in a sense, is, I, I'm going to suggest, plays the role, or potentially is playing the role of a union for this um, kind of relationship. They are the organizers. But the organizing in a cohesive small world is not trying to build a federation and you know, get somebody to pull it together at the top. The organizing is what the network folks call an orchestrator. An orchestrator, and I'll say a little more about what that role is, but an orchestrator is a group that does not have power but has influence and connection. Uh, that's, the, that's the organizing force for solidarity, for collective action within a cohesive small world. Here's what the orchestrator does, I think. Looking over, by the way, I'll look at quite a few examples of what I think of this kind of thing. Know, change movements in business to the new economic foundation to you know, various open source things um, and trying to pull lessons from that I think the orchestrator does three basic things right? it defines the purpose which is what that Mozilla mission was not only defines it, puts it out there initially actually, but redefines it in a continuous dialogue with the members this is a very active and interactive and ongoing process so the purpose is not laid out at the beginning and put up on the wall and made as the guide for all time. This is something that helps guide people, but it has, is continuously discussed and evolved, clarified, modified as they go forward. Right? So, uh, so this image of what the desirable shared future is. So purpose, they define the purpose. They create a platform for people to do what they want to do around that purpose. By a platform, right, it means providing tools, data connections that people can use uh, to pursue the kind of vision that they're all sharing. So what, what Mozilla's doing is helping people to create you know, platforms that they can easily communicate with and create new groups, platforms for um, programming in different areas, uh, platforms for political action, you know, that people can communicate with each other and, and uh, have some kinds of templates for building the action and so on. The third thing they do is process, uh, which in a sense is connecting, cre creating the, the ongoing connection between the platform and the purpose. 
and the people. Uh, so the process involves trying uh, several things. One of them is uh, drawing from the wealth of experience that is generated by these projects, by people working, you know, hacking. Gradu- generating from that some, you know, things that really do advance the mission, that really work to advance the mission, making sure they're publicized, rewarding them, maybe seeding them with money, uh, but in any case, celebrating them and helping people to learn from them. It involves enforcing norms. All of these groups, whether they're open source or Mozilla or anything, are invaded by trolls, people who want to undermine them. So you have to have some way of enforcing norms of, uh, of, of behavior and relation. Some of the more interesting, there are lots of experiments that are still going on. How to do that without, you know, having a police force, uh, their efforts to try to enforce norms by making trolling just ineffective, you know, like it doesn't actually gain any traction by reversibility of actions. I mean, this is all a complex thing, but there are uh, very, very interesting social experiments going on about how to enforce norms without a police force. Um, and uh, then a third thing they do in terms of process is picking out certain campaigns that uh, are focused for people to engage in together. And that takes me to uh, really my, my last major substantive point, which is the actual collect- when collective action is focused. So I've been talk- what I've been talking about for Mozilla is collective action, right? Clearly pursuing, pursuing a vision of society uh, in a collective way. But uh, at times, it takes a focus. For example, when legislation is proposed that would curtail the, uh, the open internet. And at those times, uh, the collective action that's generated is neither, you know, the sort of uh, distributed local communities of the craft world nor the mass confrontations, but it's something that I'm taking from the military called swarming, from the RAND Corporation. Um, so what the military has become to realize in the U.S. is that you know you can't win battles by building a big mass and confronting the enemy because the enemy sort of disperses and increases in the world of guerrillas, terrorists, and so on. So uh, that what you have to have is an organization that's not you know centrally uh, hierarchical, but one where there's a lot of distributedness, where a lot of independence, very much like what I've been describing with Mozilla. People working on different kinds of approaches and, you know, being embedded in the community. Uh, and that um, uh, the role of the coordinator, which is really the orchestrator, is to try to pull those together at the right moments. Right? So they call this swarming, right? coming from lots of different directions at, on, a, um, on, a, on a particular problem. So, for example, let me give you one example of swarming. I mean, Mozilla did kind of the anti-SOPA mobilization, the anti, uh, some of the internet legal stuff. But uh, a case which I studied some years ago was before the internet, which I thought was pretty interesting, was the disabilities movement in the U.S., which, pa- which really led to the passage of the Dis- Disabilities Act. That was, cre- that was generated, first of all, uh, when, you know, over, over a solidarity movement over quite a few years by... Um, uh, all kinds of groups come together, right? There were big sort of stodgy federations like the American Cancer Society, and there were uh, act-up groups, radical groups who sat in on buses, and there were street theater types, and there were local, you know, all kinds sort of come together around this notion. The coordinator, in this case, of the swarm, 
was a little group in Washington, Washington called Dredith, the Disability Rights Defense Fund. About a dozen researchers, no power, right? No control over any of these organizations, not in charge of a big organization. What they had was the ability to create, to, to provide data, to have a platform for people to work, to connect with each other on, and um, uh, some vision that people could connect to. So they had influence and they so this little group of 12 really coordinated a swarm of groups that were very independent and, and really, you know, pulling against each other in many respects, but came together to make this movement work. So that's my, my image of swarming. It's quite different from, by the way, somebody said to me once, you know, isn't, haven't unions always had swarms? Well, unions have sometimes created alliances where a lot of people come together around the issue, but that's quite different from a swarm where everybody's got their own issue and their own distributed way of operating and coming together through a coordinator uh, who is sort of negotiating and, and, uh, and, and shaping through dialogue with a lot of different groups. So home stretch here, just want to point out that I filled in, as it were, this third uh, type. I think the solidarity that uh, is emerging collaborative solidarity is based on these friending relationships and that's where we ought to look to it and that's what you know people interested in social change ought to be looking at activating it um, with this kind of um, ideology and through the techniques through the organizational technique of uh, orchestrated projects and swarms uh, and that that's where social change the sol- so it's not, so solidarity in short in my view has not gone away it's transforming but it's growing on what is really quite an important major social historical change in the way relationships work. Um, And so you might end up saying something like, instead of workers of the world unite, which was the kind of slogan of industrial solidarity, something like uh, workers of the world hack, network, it's war. Thank you. I think we've, we've got about uh, half an hour for questions. Uh, anybody has any or comments? Hopefully. Yes? Uh, my name is Greg Thompson. I'm the uh, head of strategic organizing for a British trade union called Unison. So very interesting what you said. And clearly there is uh, a decline in industrial solidarity. Um, I'm not sure you fully explained why there was a decline in industrial solidarity. I think one of our concerns is that it comes about because of increasing fragmentation at work and in the workplace so that the working environment gets smaller and smaller. And that has implications, it seems to me, not just for the uh, concept of industrial solidarity and how that might work, but it also has some implications for how effective in the workplace, not in other contexts, but in the workplace, your concept of collaborative solidarity might be. I'd be interested in your views on that. Thanks. 
Well, I do. Uh, I entirely agree that the core of the decline of industrial solidarity is the fragmentation of the workplace. So, as I say, you know, the breaking up of the factory, the big factory idea, into you know, for lots of reasons. Some of it's subcontracting, and some of it's automation, and some of it is just the different ways of management around teams. People are not having that large group experience anymore. Right? So that I'm entirely with you. Now, the question is: Does this make any? That's the next question: Is does this make any difference? So the idea is, and, uh, you know, there's a group called the Freelancers Union in, in the U.S. which is sort of trying to, you know, begin to... So we're, we're very early on this. But uh, the idea is that you don't have to be part of a, of, a, of a large group, of a large factory with a manager walking around and yelling at you and so on to have solidarity around this if you have some kind of clarity about what sort of society you're looking for and if that clarity is with the ideal, in the ideological direction that, we're talk- that, I'm, that I think these people are talking about. We want a society that's diverse and open and multi, multiplex and so on. No, you're not going to be able to get out that way. <laughs> Very embarrassing. There's no escape. No escape. You're going to have to come this way. <laughs> but, um, so that, uh, I mean, there's no real reason why a fragmented workplace couldn't be, or why a set of fragmented workplaces couldn't be organized like this with, by an orchestrator. That's the basic idea. That the idea of this kind of solidarity is that it orchestrates independent project kind of groups. So the people who are working on Mozilla, the people who work on the Disabilities Act and so on, were not, you know, in a large, you know, plate you could pull everybody together in a room and get them to vote. And yet they still manage to have a major social impact. So I think the tactics that I'm talking about, about um, you know platform process, the, the kind of process I'm talking about, uh, about swarming, are the ways that you're going to work in a fragmented workplace. Yeah. Um, I think at the oh, well, sorry, I okay. I, uh, I preempted you there. Is it? I think at the okay. back, Greg. You think you're... Thank you for your interesting analysis. My name is Greg Bamber. I'm at Monash University in Australia. Um, in relation to can you hear me at the front? In relation to the decline in solidarity, I think it's a very interesting story, but I wonder if there's another aspect to the story, and that is the growth of solidarity among employers, if you like, and the move to the neoliberal agenda, which has reinforced uh, laws to prohibit strike action or to make strike action uh, very difficult. And in a sense, this is another angle building on the last point, you know, workers and their unions uh, find it very difficult to organise strike action now because of the um, myriad of labour laws that they have to navigate in terms of having ballots and giving notice and, and so on and so forth. And this is reinforced by the kind of solidarity between employers and governing regimes and the, and the media as well, uh, which is perhaps an, another side of the coin to the, uh, to the interesting trends that you've been pointing to, Charles. Hmm. Yeah, I think, uh, I think that's, that's interesting. The, 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 the problem I have with that argument is that when industrial solidarity really took off in the U.S. in the 1930s, other places at the time, it wasn't like it was easy then. Uh, on the contrary, they were overcoming obstacles that were much more intense. People were shooting at them. And yet the solidarity managed to carry it. So we have to explain, you know, what? So that's, that's one. But the other thing is that when I talked to labor leaders, uh, uh, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, they were saying, well, there's no solidarity because we've been too successful. We've already accomplished, you know, so much that people don't have much to fight for. Now they say, 
there's no solidarity because we're not successful enough because we can't win it. Well, I can't really have it both ways. So I don't think those explanations work very well historically or Thank you. Mm -hmm. well, back corner. Well, you, green. We, we had one over there, but uh, that oh, I, yeah, I have to so try and yeah. mix it, try and mix okay, it up. Okay, very good. Get some students. <laughs> it's, uh, it's interesting that you've mentioned uh, different platforms. Um, a, a platform that a lot of different kind of collaborative uh, solidarity is organized on is Twitter, for example. Um, I'm from an organization called Football Beyond Borders, and we had no money. We're run by students. We started at the SOAS University nearby, and within five years, we've managed to grow completely and start you know, getting funding for the projects we do, using football to do social projects. But if it wasn't for Twitter, it wouldn't have happened. We wouldn't have been able to reach people across the world to run projects in you know, Palestine, different, different places where we couldn't have even imagined going before. So what, what is your opinion on Twitter, and how can... Twitter be mobilized to kind of avoid a lot of the kind of reactive and maybe kind of non-solidarity stuff that does go on there, because there's a lot of that as well, and how can we maximize the solidarity stuff to, to make change, social change? Yeah, I, uh, that's a, I mean, I think Facebook, Facebook and Twitter are in the same direction, and the basic kinds of Fast and you know these things are huge. So when we talk about 1.3 billion Facebook members, there's a lot more when you add in all these others. It's really extraordinary. Um, so, I, I, but I think my yeah, I mean there's nothing magical about those relations that turns into progressive solidarity. They need to be organized, and then, so you need to be an orchestrator. That's the concept I'm trying to plant, as as it were, or to promote. Um, that, uh, and and uh, those things that orchestrators have to do. So I don't know how, I'm sure you did, you know, think pretty actively about the purpose, right? And get that out there, and if there's an interactive thing going on about what are we trying to do, and try to clarify all the time. Right? Rather different from unions, uh, not often that I'm familiar with, but what they say is fixed, is engraved in stone, often literally, and uh, nobody actually pays attention to it. Right? The purpose becomes a very driving, continuous enemy. So within Twitter, Twitter is a platform, but you have to create within it a lot of these particularized connections, data, faces, and so on, and um, that help people to do what they what, what you're trying to get done, right? And, and I assume again, you're probably doing all that, right? But to think about, you know, I, I think I'm, so. All I'm doing is trying to systematize what I see people doing, like you're doing, the purpose of platform, and then these process things, which I didn't get into very deeply because they get very complex. But how to manage controls, how to manage, you know, how to, how to bring out successes, and so on, are, are very complex. I think there are a lot of, that, that, that should be a long research project for a lot of people about the things that are being done in open source, the things that are being done in organizations like yours, to create a process that works over time uh, to connect the platforms to those. Okay, yes, I guess. Thank you very much, Willow. You mentioned the RAND, Rand Corporation. I, there's a book, Minovsky and the Sheen Dreams, which I want to read about the intellectual concepts behind that. I think it was established after the war to deal with uh, military matters, but you meant, does it deal with sociological problems as well that you've been describing, the RAND Corporation? If you could say anything about its work in that area, I don't know. Did you hear me? I'm not sure. Who, so what was the book? The RAND Corporation. The Rand it, Corporation. it was doing 
didn't work about military strategy, but right, right, right. it has social problems as yeah. well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Rand, yeah, actually Rand, I mean, there's a very interesting report you can get online uh, where they developed this idea of swarming. I don't, I don't, I forget if that's in the title, but um, I could get you the, the reference. But they develop it in the military context, but they also apply it to some social context. So one of the examples I mentioned uh, up there but didn't discuss was the Zapatistas in Mexico. That's one that comes out of the RAM report. They discuss it explicitly as an example of social swarming uh, that has a very, because again, very, very different groups coming together from very different places, not in a hierarchy, not in a mass, uh, but coordinated by a rather small group. So there are, yeah, there are all these social examples as well. Um, Alex Wood from Cambridge University. I'd just like to say, yeah, thanks. It was really useful because I'm currently writing out my PhD and some of, that, some of it looks at the Walmart uh, mobilization in California and I definitely agree that kind of a lot of what you've described, um, you can really see it in, in that mobilization, kind of small numbers of workers who are networked together through social media who are trying to use kind of symbolic power through direct action linked in with social media to have those effects. Um, um, I just wanted to ask how you thought kind of this more utopian kind of ideology interacts with more traditional um, kind of ideologies. So when I've talked to Walmart workers, what they want is kind of to live not in, in poverty and not in, with insecure work. Um, and also kind of how this uh, small world, cohesive small world, how that kind of interacts with the idea of kind of workers of the world network, which sound, which is more to do with class, and kind of I think you can see with the Walmart workers and the fast food workers, how there's this networked kind of uh, low-waged workers move, movement growing, which is closer to a class than kind of a small yeah, world. Or, or has, has, a, has a class base to some extent, and I think in the case of Walmart there is a more opposition, oppositional quality. But it does have a lot of the nature of swarm. I've been, I've been thinking about that a little. In that, you know, again, unlike most union efforts, and this is, tends to be led by SEIU, I don't know if it is in your area, but um, uh, SEIU isn't bad, at least in the union scale, at thinking about how to organize a swarm. Um, and, and that is to give a lot of independence to the various groups that are involved, rather than trying to get them all in one, one group. So, uh, so it's kind of in between the terms that I'm talking about. And I think there is a little bit of an oil and water problem. I think SEIU runs into that problem fairly often, that people within SEIU want to go out and, you know, sort of raise their fists, and, and other people who are supporting it really don't and have a very different idea of what that movement looks like. And um, uh, there's an inconsistency about, about how they do it. Now, I think, I think unions in general have a lot of trouble with this kind of, you know, they're based around the industrial ideology. SEIU is deliberately trying to think other ways, but having trouble doing it. Uh, so uh, uh, I, I did a study a, a few years ago of uh, jobs and justice, which is, you know, related to the Walmart thing. It's a sort of a, an attempt by unions to generate a kind of local, ground, bottom-up, community-based sort of uh, initiatives. And I was fascinated to find that the examples I looked at in the South were more of the U.S. were more successful than the ones in the North. And the reason I concluded was that in the South, the unions are weak. The other groups were pretty strong. So the unions didn't try to take it over, couldn't. They acted much more as orchestrators, uh, though I didn't use that terminology then. In the North, the unions were strong. They expected to define the thing and, def and have everybody fall in line behind them. And that 
created tension within the movement that ultimately undermined it. So I, as I've seen SEIU and other unions, well, this also happened with the anti-globalization movement. The unions were in, and then they pulled out. It also happened with Occupy. You know, they couldn't figure out how to deal with the fragmented, dispersed nature of these things. There are some people in the union movement who get it, but it's hard. Uh, they, have no, they don't have the, the institutional memory or institutional techniques really to mobilize dispersed movements very well. Okay, um, David, I think you... It's really interesting, um, and I like your proposal of the collaborative model, but how much of a threat do you think is posed to this by the mass surveillance activities of GCHQ and the NSA? Well, I, you know, I haven't really thought about that. That's, I, think it's, I think a big threat. And I would assume, well, I mean, I, I, know, I know, but just from, you know, anecdotally, that uh, a lot of these groups like Reddit and, and, and groups on Facebook and so on are very opposed, extremely opposed. And, and, of course, Google and a lot of the sort of Internet leaders are very opposed to this stuff. And in part because it does counteract the whole logic of these friending relations. And so there's, you know, there's a, there's a logic, there's an ideology, and so on, and it's, it's clearly opposed. But for Google, it's a business thing too. The business model, the way the business works, if there's that kind of surveillance on it, it's not going to work because it's based on people friending each other, essentially. Um, so there is a, a real clash of cultures, and I don't know how that's going to come out. I mean, you know, maybe this will all lose. Um, but I don't think so. I think uh, the young people and older people who have... Uh, experience this sort of open and diverse sort of relation, they're going to keep it going and uh, are not going to I think if, if they really, if the NSA really tried to in, infiltrate and control a lot of these kinds of groups, there would be a major, you know, internet upper. I don't know what would happen, but there would be a serious collective action around that. Well, I can, but we're getting pretty speculative here. It's a good point. Good question. Um. Back, very back. Uh, hi. Um, so just to clarify and to summarize all those sort of questions put together, are you saying that sort of trade unions and that sort of industrialized action is now not as effective and is sort of, it's in the past now and it's not going to work anymore in order to, to bring a social change and that we have to do these sort of swarming and, and other techniques that you're talking about? Yeah, I would say that in, in, you know, to oversimplify, yes. I mean, it doesn't mean that there won't be any more successful industrial actions ever and so on. There's still craft unions around. There's still craft strikes. But it's very much on the decline. And I think it's very clear that industrial action is less effective, in part because it mobilizes less solidarity, in part because, you know, the workplace is more fragmented, so it's much harder to find a place to, to, to attack, you know, that, that's effective. Um, employers are more sophisticated, you know, they break people up and uh, all this kind of stuff. So, yes, industrial action is less effective. If you're going to succeed, that's how you can do it. Yes. Um, yes. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so I think this is possible. I guess you. Oh, cheers. Um, you, there's, I guess, a lot of optimism in your sort of comments about the opportunities in sort of hacking and networking and swarming. Do you think that there is currently enough um, political weight in those methods of organising? I mean, like, everyone, like, loads of people are on Facebook and don't use it for political organisation. Um, there's nothing inherently political about those networks. It's uh, something that enables potential to mobilise. 
So without, if, if you're saying that industrial action is somehow a thing of the past, do you, how do you see um, the, the necessary connection between these networks, which maybe have been used for various like, political actions, there's lots of stuff you see organized on Twitter, Facebook, lots of demonstrations are organized that way, but how do you see um, moving f- from the political sphere into a specific mobilization around class and the labor relation which uh, because everyone still works capital is still produced through labor the labor relation is still really important for how society works how do you think that's going to map well everyone doesn't still work unfortunately but no that's a side but no I I, uh, certainly um, uh, I mean I think Actually, that's an important thing. I think capitalism is, uh, is in the process of confronting a major crisis in the sense that everybody's not going to be able to work. There just aren't enough jobs or, or, or traditional jobs that are stable to go around. And there'll be less and less of that as the economy becomes more automated, you know, as automation progresses, artificial intelligence. And stuff. So that's a big crisis for, for capitalism. Huh? Um, I don't know. There's a real problem here around inequality uh, for anybody to think about. Um, we've had growing inequality for uh, 35 years now in the U.S. Uh, and people keep saying, have kept saying over and over again at the time, ah, this time people are going to you know, rise up. And they haven't done it yet. Now, that doesn't mean they won't. I think at some point, if I, I, as far as I can see, the dynamics uh, that are creating greater inequality are now self-reinforcing and are not likely to reverse. So it's going to get worse. What that tends to lead to has historically is... Uh, Explosion of consciousness, as Michael Mann called it, right? Which is everybody suddenly saying, enough is enough. Not that everybody has been part of a solidary group, right? Not, not, there hasn't been solid, there, an explosion of consciousness is not solidary in the sense that I mean. Just everybody's seeing things, catalyzing around one issue in the same way at the same time. When that happens, and it's happened periodically throughout history, general strikes and revolutions and so on, um, the consequences are unpredictable. They almost never go anywhere near where the originators want them to go. Right? Because they're not solidary. Because they have no clear vision that unites people and relations that built around those visions. And so they tend to be, to fragment, to go in any kinds of directions, to be easily co-opted, to um, have reactionary forces. So I can't predict that. But I think that's a somewhat separate uh, a set of dynamics that I can't you know, I can't deal with in terms of, I think we're, I think we're likely to have an explosion of consciousness around, around class inequality, and I don't think that that will create an equal society. It's very unlikely to. Um, and the best thing that I can think of doing is to develop the real solidarity, solidarity networks that are emerging in these forms into ways of, you know, more consciousness about how to build a society that's actually open and diverse and that requires some solidarity. And then that may therefore be able to when the explosion comes, maybe in the spirit, effectively in a just direction rather than an unjust direction. Okay? Yes, hello. Um, uh, how could you disagree with the idea that a worker's conspiracy to extort money from an employer is a form of extortion. And surely it should be illegal. 
Well, uh, it's, it's not an issue that I'm taking on here because that is a characteristic of industrial solidarity um, that uh, I'm sort of saying is increasingly ineffective in any case. So I can somewhat avoid your question from the analytic point of view. I don't see, uh, I, I, do you have any moral, you're raising a moral question, right? Uh, do you have, see any moral problem with the kind of solidarity that I'm describing here, which is people really self-organizing around projects to, uh, you know, to create more openness and, and diversity and equality and so on in the society? Uh, what it would lead to, let's say, at the workplace, and this addresses an earlier question too, um, increasingly work is more or less independent, right? Rather than being, you know, you're going to work for an employer for you know, the rest of your life, you may be working for several employers, many people are working you know, in this flexible way. Uh, how do they organize? Well, I think they do get to insist, for example, that when the employer, when they do work for an employer, they get paid, as, they, as, as it was agreed, and they should be able to organize morally by any standard to insist that contracts are adhered to. Uh, they should, but more to the point, what this kind of solidarity does for independent workers is it creates a platform of, inf of, of information and mutual self-help, which can add a lot of power to them without the issue you're talking about, right? If independent workers know where the good jobs are, if independent workers are able to support each other in finding, you know, in uh, both between jobs, with information, with social support, um, then they will have a lot more power in relation to the in the employment relation, and um, can make that relatively independent work more fair. Uh, and that's the direction that I see employment relations likely to go in as work becomes more independent. Um, I think uh, yes, Gregory is. Trying not to favor the editors, but <laughs> I suspect you'll have a good question. Yeah, uh, Gregory Jackson from uh, Berlin. And um, yeah, coming from Berlin, your talk reminded me a lot of the famous Berlin sociologist uh, Georg Simmel and mm -hmm. uh, yes. you know, yes. what he talks about um, in the, the, the metropolis and social life and people inhabiting multiple so non-overlapping social circles. And, and then here they're sort of geographically what you've added is kind of, you know, extended into space. And what Zimmel says, you know, for some person, their identity can be the chess club, and that might be the project. And, and for someone else, it, it, it can be any of those circles. Um, so I'd like to, to ask you to come back to kind of identity. And, and so, okay, so what, how do you choose? Because it wasn't so clear to me that the doing of collaboration um, forms the identity or forms the common identity because the whole point is that you can right. choose the identity. So right. how do people yep. choose that? The common identity, no, I mean, I think this is, a, a, you know, th there's a lot of research to be done around this. But this, I mean, Mead is another person who makes this kind of point about identities being intersectional identities. There's a lot of research going on around this no now, around this notion of intersectional identities because there was the, the new social movements where people said, oh, you know, I'm a woman and I'm proud or I'm a black and I'm proud of it, you know, and uh, asserting that. And now they're saying, well, you know, I'm not just a woman, I'm also, you know, a, a, a worker or here and I, you know, and I'm in part of this uh, this group here, and I may be a lesbian, or I may be, you know, so there are a lot of different identities that I'm part of, right? And how do I put all those? So there's research work going on around intersectional identities. That's relevant to what I'm talking about. People piece these identities together. Well. Um, uh, by you know, it's it's an it's an ongoing process of continual self-evaluation. I think the uh, re reflexivity, Giddens' notion of reflexive identity, is extremely relevant here. That people create a reflexive loop within their own 
formulation of identity. Uh, I think this is going much further than either Mead or Zimmel foresaw. Uh, and it's amazing. You know, this, it's really an incredible transformation of the way human beings, human beings have, throughout their history, grown up in a group for the, mo- the vast majority and taken their identity from that group. And the notion of piecing together an identity through your whole life is totally different, and we're just starting to learn about it. I don't see any more, and I, we're just about quitting time. One more question, if anyone has any, has one. Uh, okay, yes. When you mentioned about the explosive consciousness, yeah. um, an, example that, an example that just came to mind was maybe um, the Arab Spring. Yeah. Um, so I didn't know if you had any comments on that, because that maybe is an interesting blend between you know, the newer form of solidarity and the traditional you know, people going out onto the street and confrontationally you know, demanding something as a mass. And so I just wondered if you had any comments. I mean, people talk about the Arab Spring as being an example of social media generated. It's really not that wrong. Uh, it's nothing like what I'm talking about here in terms of collaborative solidarity. It was much more of an explosion of consciousness. So all of a sudden, all kinds of people said, well, all right, and, and they really hadn't. I mean, there were, the, the networks underneath it of so the solidarity were very weak. And in terms of social media, had been developed only really within a few weeks of the actual uprising. So this is a classic case of how the uprising, the, the social consciousness, did not go anywhere near the direction that the people wanted it, who started it wanted it to go. You know, the other forces, it, it's easily uh, co-opted, corrupted, uh, led astray. So this is exactly an example that I think of as, as the problems with an explosion of consciousness. Those who want class uprising at this point, uh, you don't know what you're going to get, basically. Just, just as the Egyptian Arab Spring didn't know what they were going to get. And um, so we'd better you know, work on building the solidarity that can create justice, uh, I think, rather than hoping it's going to suddenly explode. OK, any, any other? Okay, well, okay, just a second. Okay, okay this will be your second, so try and make it, try and make it short. Okay. Was it because the orchestrators in that case, maybe there might have been some orchestrators in the, in the Arab Spring who didn't want social justice to happen and so orchestrated things in a certain way, played people off against each other and actually took advantage of that intersectionality and the different identities and maybe corrupted the whole thing. Yeah, that's a very interesting line of, of thought, and I don't think I know enough to respond, but I think the question of how these movements get on the mind is just as important as the question of how they get built. So somebody should take that <laughs> okay, I think we're done. I mean, I think uh, Charles more than delivered. And stay tuned because some version of this talk should be coming out in the BJIR later this year, probably our December issue, along with a whole bunch of other stimulating and interesting articles, which I'm sure you'll all, maybe I'm lying here, I, um, uh, which I'm sure you'll all enjoy reading. So, but anyway, keep your eyes open because I think it promises to be a very, very good piece. Thank you again.